Many years ago, a great evangelist, Henry Ironside, was preaching on a busy street corner in a northeastern city when a well-dressed man walked up and began to jeer and to mock his preaching. Ironside recognized the heckler as a a well-known professor in the community, but also an outspoken atheist. The professor was full of spite and bitterness toward all religion, but especially toward Christianity. Ironside tried to ignore him and keep on preaching, but the heckler kept raising his voice and shouting his objections. He criticized the Bible. He called Christians ignorant fools. He loudly proclaimed, there is no God and Jesus is a myth. Ironside was determined to ignore him, but the man kept on and he grew more and more belligerent, eventually calling on Ironside to debate him, challenge him in a debate and wanting him to to answer his intellectual questions. Now, Ironside knew that a debate would not prove anything, that it would not actually settle anything and would not help this man or anyone else come to know Jesus Christ as their saviors. But he also understood that people were paying attention and he needed to acknowledge and answer the man's attacks. And so he said, I accept your challenge, sir, but on one condition. When you come to the debate, I ask that you bring with you ten men and women whose lives have been changed for better by the message of atheism. Bring some alcoholics and drug addicts who have been set free by atheism's power. Bring former prostitutes and criminals whose lives have been changed and who are now more moral and more responsible individuals. Bring outcasts who had no hope and tell us, have them tell us how becoming atheists lifted them up out of the pit. Ironside concluded, if you can find ten such men and women, I'll be happy to debate you. And when I come, I will gladly bring with me 200 men and women from this very city whose lives have been transformed in just these ways by the power of the gospel, Jesus Christ. As the professor heard Ironside's challenge, he stopped jeering, he turned and he walked away. He knew that for all of its pretense, atheism had no power to change lives. Jesus changes lives. Jesus makes us into a new person and the salvation he gives us gives us new life. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that wonderfully describes the difference Jesus makes in those that He saves. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 is where we're going to start. Um, and I do not know what page number that is, I did not put it in my sermon notes. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians, chapter six, verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you have been washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. title of the message this morning is What Jesus Does. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. God, you are 
amazing in what you do in the lives of those who believe in you. The change that you have brought into my life, God, is something I am ever thankful for. And often amazed by. Your power is not diminished from the days of Corinth to the days that we are now. You are still the God who changes lives, pulls people out of the pit, washes them, regenerates them, and makes them into new creations. Father, many in here today have experienced your life-changing power, and we can attest to what you do in the life of those who believe is a wonderful and amazing thing. God, there are likely some in here today that have never experienced this life-changing power. They've tried on their own to turn over a new leaf to make changes, but those changes were not successful. Father, today let your Holy Spirit come and let Him work in the hearts and the minds of all that are gathered here today to see what you can do. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and He would make your word living and active in our lives. Father, if we are here today and if we are in need of being redeemed by Jesus Christ, let it be clear to us. Let us respond in faith. I need your Holy Spirit to come and to anoint me, to give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, so that I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. Help us today to have tender hearts towards your word. Let us have ears to hear and be sensitive to what you want done in our lives. Break down our pride. Overcome our sin and our objections. And let us leave here today. It's the Corinthians. What we were is not what we are. If we have been washed, we have been sanctified. We have been justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. The sin of the city of Corinth was great. Some, it seems, had seeped back into the church. And there were one or two things that were going on. Either the Corinthians, some of them were backsliding and going back into the way of life that they lived before they met Jesus Christ. Or possibly some of them were never truly saved to begin with. But either way, sin was beginning to, to creep in to the lives, the hearts of the people. Paul addressed that. And I love the way that Paul addressed it. He addressed it really not so much in a, a negative, harsh, judgmental way. But he addressed it in the way of what they were. Right? In, in a time's past, this is what you were. But now, now you have been made something different. Right? Don't go back to what you were because Jesus has done something great in your life. And that's the encouragement that he wants them is to live the difference that Jesus has made in their lives. And the truth, the central truth that I want us to understand is that Jesus turned sinners into saints. When Paul arrived, the people of Corinth lived in the sins that were listed here and probably many others. Paul preached Jesus. The people believed in Jesus. And Jesus transformed them. And in the beginning chapters of this book, Paul refers to them as saints in Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus does. What Jesus did then is what Jesus does now. But we have a part to play in what Jesus does in turning sinners into saints. And the Bible tells us in this passage that there are three, three ways we play our part well. One... 
to confess my sin as sin. I confess my sin as sin. Paul starts by saying, do you know, not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul is an expert communicator and he knows human nature well. And he knows that if he were to just say the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, that what people would do is they would hear that and say, absolutely. But they would say absolutely because what they were doing is they are understanding that unrighteousness is what other people do. It's not what they do. That's kind of what we tend to do. When we just give a a nebulous sin is wrong, everybody agrees. Sure, sin is wrong. But sin is what other people do. Sin is not what I do. So Paul, not willing to leave it in the, the nebulous realm of unrighteousness or sin, he gets specific and he deals with things that were common in their day, which, as we see, are common in our day as well. He mentions fornication and adultery, right, as two of the sin. Sin or sex outside the bonds of marriage is always a sin. There is never a time or a situation in which that is acceptable in the eyes of God. It is always unrighteous. It is always a sin. Fornication is an interesting word. And and by no means do I know Greek, but I know it's the word pornea, where the word pornography comes from. And the word was a a far-reaching word that included really all kinds of sexual immorality. It included being directly involved in the acts of sexual immorality, as well as being an audience watching it. Live sex acts were common in the Corinthian world. So for us, not only is sex outside the bonds uh, bonds of marriage a sin, but watching it through pornography or romance novels or things like that is also what's included here. The next he talks about, is idolaters, idolatry. Now, often we narrowly and wrongly limit idolatry to being building an idol, bowing down and worshiping to a statue. And certainly that is a form of idolatry. That is not the only kind of idolatry that exists. It's not even the only kind that the Bible mentions. The Bible also speaks of what I would call mental idolatry. And mental idolatry is to have wrong ideas of who God is and what God is like. But the Bible has revealed to us what God is like. The Bible has told us what His standards and His rightness is and and what He will do and who He is and all of these things. Mental idolatry sees the Bible's wording about who God is and says, I don't know that that's really true. I, I think God might be like this instead. I can't imagine a God... Who thinks fornication's a sin? I can't imagine a God who would judge unrighteous and not let them in the kingdom of God. That is mental idolatry. Anytime we reject the biblical revelation of who God is and what God is like and make a God that suits us, that is idolatry and is always a sin. There is also what we might call material idolatry. For the very essence of idolatry is just having something other than Jesus as the primary focus of devotion in our lives. Anytime something other than Jesus, my love for him, my desire for him is the driving force of my life. Whatever that is has become an idol for me. And what makes this difficult is the list of what could be an idol is great when we see it like that. Money could be an idol. Position could be an idol. 
Possessions could be an idol. Family, whether it's our spouse or our children, could be an idol. Sex and pleasure, comfort or TV, homes or cars. I mean, there is, there is no end to the list of things that we can make the primary object of devotion in our lives and thus become idolaters. The problem with those things are, is it's not that they're bad things. But bad things, or good things, become sinful things when we make them ultimate things. And when we make anything other than Jesus ultimate in our lives, we are idolaters. And perhaps the, the greatest idol of our culture is just very simply self-idolatry. Jesus has called on all of us to follow him, to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. When I refuse to deny myself and take up my cross, I am exalting my will over his will. I am making me the central focus of my life instead of Jesus. And I am still a self-idolater. Idolatry is a sin and it always will be. In homosexuals and sodomites, he uses two words to describe homosexuality. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the different ways homosexuality can be lived out. One is a word that refers to basically men who dress like women. Men who are like women. Right? The, the word in the King James is effeminate. The other word, it simply means man or a woman who has sex with someone of the same gender as them. Homosexuality is it's always a sin. Um, nor thieves. Thieves take things that do not belong to them, nor covetous. Covetous are people who have really an insatiable desire for more. And the more can be anything, money, possessions, stuff, sex, pleasure, comfort, anything. It's an interesting thing. The Greek word, it referred to a, a desire that could not be filled. Right, so just saying I want better is not necessarily covetous. But if I get better and then still want more better, that is. You can no more satisfy the, the covetous desire than you can fill up a bowl where the bottom has been broken out of it. Just an insatiable desire for more is covetousness, and that is a sin. Nor drunkards. Drunkards would refer to what we might call alcoholism, plus maybe what we call social drinkers who get drunk. Drunkenness is, is always a sin. Right? There, is, there is never a situation in which being drunk is acceptable. Nor revilers. Revilers are people who are basically verbally abusive. A reviler is someone who, who abuses others through their words, whether it's through profanity, whether it's through slander, whether it's through just hostility. Right? A verbal, someone who verbally abuses another is a, a reviler. Nor extortioners. An extortioner is someone who takes someone else's stuff either by force or through subterfuge. Trick people into giving. Someone who sells you a lemon, saying it's the best car and it's worth this much and it's really a piece of junk that's falling apart, that's an extortioner. That's how that would qualify according to the biblical phrase. All of these things are sin. All of these things are unrighteousness. And the reason I said we have to confess my sin is sin is because we are, we are expert justifiers. Very rarely do we sin. Here's what we do instead. We make mistakes. 
If you've ever seen celebrity, even celebrity preachers or politicians that have been caught in adultery, been caught through doing any number of things that forced them to resign or give the apology tours, what do they always say? I've made some mistakes. But a mistake is not a sin. If you were watching when we did the, the as the deer pants for the water, you noticed that at one point it said, Y-O-U-R, instead of, you are my heart's desire. That's a mistake. Cheating on my wife, that's a sin. Those are not the same things. Jesus turns sinners into saints. But only those who confess their sin as sin. Secondly, accept the consequences for my sin. I think by and large, as Americans particularly, we have a far less ugly view of sin than what the Bible has for it. And this is why we have to confess our sin as sin. Because until I confess my sin as sin... I won't understand the consequences for my sin. I mean, it's, it's just almost wrong to punish someone for a mistake, right? I mean, periodically, there are wrong words in the, in the slideshow. Periodically, I do have the wrong date or spell names wrong in the bulletin. I think it would be a little harsh for the church to fire me over those kinds of mistakes. But if I was caught cheating on my wife, well, now that wouldn't be a mistake. That would be a sin. And that would be a legitimate reason for firing. And so, we have a hard time accepting what the Bible says about the consequences for sin as long as we see them merely as mistakes. And I heard a story several years ago that illustrated, I think, perfectly the way we as Americans are about this. A pastor from Virginia went out knocking doors trying to lead people to Jesus was talking to a lady there, and in the course of their conversation, sharing the gospel, he asked her, have you ever sinned? And she smiled and said, of, well, yeah, I guess we've all sinned, haven't we? So he asked her, are your sins serious? And he said her smile faded a little bit, and she said, well, I suppose. I mean, I guess all sin is serious. So he asked the third question. Is your sin serious enough to send you to hell? And he said her smile went away completely, and she said, no, no, it is not. And I believe that is the view that most people, most Americans especially, have of our sin. Sure, we've sinned. Everybody blows it. Oh, I suppose all sin is serious. Serious enough to send me to hell? Absolutely not. See, a question we all have to wrestle with is, is my sin that serious? Will my sin, is my sin serious enough to send me to hell? And if we cannot say yes to that, if we don't know that the answer to that is yes, it's because we are deceived. That's what Paul says. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And after listing some, more un, some things that are unrighteous, he, re, he reiterates they will have no part in the kingdom of God. The idea of do not be deceived, this is frequent in Paul's writing. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
actions have consequences. And we, we choose our actions, but we cannot choose the consequences of those actions. But I cannot choose to sow to the flesh and then at the same time choose to reap everlasting life from the Spirit. When I choose to sow to the flesh, when I choose sin, I am also choosing the consequences of those sin. And it's always that way. We're not, I mean, there's just no way around it. That is the law of sowing and reaping. Paul also says, but fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints. For neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. The sons and daughters of disobedience are those who live in sin. Let no one deceive you by teaching you otherwise. Let no one deceive you by making you believe anything else. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I believe, as I was thinking about this, that there are... Multiple ways in which people are deceived about this. One is through false teaching deception, right? This is what Paul was referring to with empty words. False teaching deception says the Bible doesn't mean what it says. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. You pick any sin that Paul has listed here or that he listed in Ephesians or that Galatians 5, 19 through 21 lists. And you Google it. And you will find someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ explain why that sin, that action, is not a sin. Their, their, their writing will sound scholarly likely. It will have all of these reasons about why the times have changed and how back in that day it wasn't like it is today. And, and, it'll, and it'll sound really good. But there's really only one problem with these arguments. Those who are writing these position papers do not get to make the rules. God does. God is the one who determines what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Right? And when God has revealed what is unrighteous, as He has in His Word, there is no higher court to appeal to. There is no one who outranks God who can change the rules. No matter how scholarly they sound, how many Greek words they use, how many big long words they use, it doesn't change anything. What God has said, man cannot change. Do not be deceived by false teaching. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's also the exception deception. The exception deception says, I'm the exception to the rule. This is something we see all the time. People who, who believe they should be the exception to negative consequences for their actions. For the teachers in here, how many times have you had a student not study, not do their homework, and then flunk the test? Come to you afterward and say, why did you flunk me? Right? No, you, I didn't flunk you. You didn't study. You 
didn't do your homework, you failed the test. They expected that if they, even though they didn't study, even though they didn't do the work, they should get a passing grade. They should be the exception. I bet Michael could tell stories of pulling people over who were going 60 and a 45 and have them explain why it was okay for them to be speeding at that particular time. We tend to believe we should be the exception to negative consequences. And we believe that when it comes to this. I think that's part of why Paul said, be not, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God has said there are consequences for our actions. God has said that there are, he has no favorites who can sin and get away with it. You are not the exception to the rule. Do not be deceived. If you are unrighteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. A third deception is the replacement deception. The replacement deception says my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. The replacement deception, we look and we say, as long as, I mean, yeah, I'm doing things wrong. I'm not trying to deny that. But look at all the good I do also. Look at all of these good things I do and all the good deeds I do. And we try to point to that. And, and those who believe the replacement deception believe that as long as their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, then they're okay. Now, an interesting thing about that is that those who believe this, they define good deeds and bad deeds in their own way. It's not that they use the Bible to do this. Those who, who believe the replacement deception, they're not turning the other cheek. They're not forgiving others. They're not sharing the gospel. They're not helping the poor. They're not living a holy life except in this area. They are defining good deeds. I'm a good worker. I dress nice. I'm a productive member of society. They define their bad deeds in their way. It's not like I'm killing people. It's not that they're defining things biblically and trying to compare the two. It's that they have their own definition of good deeds and they have their own definition of bad deeds. And since their definition of good deeds are better than their definition of bad deeds, they're okay. To that I say, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You cannot live a life of rebellion against God and expect that your your other deeds will offset that. And if there was another one, I would say it's the comparison deception. I'm not as bad as they are. Yes, I'm doing these things and they're wrong, but I'm not as bad as Bob over here. Look at Bob. Bob is a horrible human being. I'm not that. That's also a, a type of deception. Do not be deceived. Those who live in unrighteousness and sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live this life in rebellion against God will not spend heaven with God, will not go to heaven and spend eternity with God. That's just not the way that it works. And it's not just here that we find this. We saw in Ephesians 5 the same sort of an idea. If we were to look at Galatians 5, we would see the same sort of an idea. The works of the flesh are manifest and they are these. And it lists these things and it said, And such like, and I tell you, those who do those things have no part in the kingdom of God. But the one that interests me the most, the one that I have found the most interesting on this, 
is found in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. If you get to the concordance of the maps, you have gone too far. Revelation 21 is our clearest and best picture of what heaven will be like. Most of the images we have, they come from here. John the Revelator writes, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write this, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. He shall be my son. Now, in verse 9, it goes on and just talks more and more about heaven and the description of it. And so right in this middle, right in the middle of this great picture of heaven, look at what verse 8 says. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Isn't that interesting? Right in this positive, hopeful description of heaven, God takes a, a side road and said, but not everybody's going. These people have no part in the kingdom of heaven. And the reason I believe that God put this here because it's in such stark contrast to the rest, is because God in His infinite wisdom knew that a day would come like ours. A day in which everyone believed they were going to heaven. In which everyone would say, look at this description of heaven, I'm going there, that's for me. And God knows the unrighteous will not be in heaven. That's just a fact. Do not be deceived. You have to accept the consequences for your sin. Jesus absolutely, go ahead and turn back to 1 Corinthians, turns sinners into saints. But He only does it for those who accept the consequences for their sin and understand that their sin is unrighteousness and that their sin keeps them out of the kingdom of God. And then the our final action is to embrace Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Verse 11, Jesus says, and, or Paul says, and such were some of you. See, this is why this is a hopeful passage. This is why this is a good thing. Sin, for sure, is dangerous. Sin, for sure, is damning to our souls. But living in unrighteousness does not have to be fatal because there is a God-given cure 
for our unrighteousness. God has a plan that will fix what we have done wrong. Right? And Paul describes what Jesus does. Right? And this is all about Jesus. Right? This is all done in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? So Jesus is the name by which we are saved from our unrighteousness and the judgment to come. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us to go from being unrighteous to righteous, from being condemned to being saved. And Paul describes this work in three ways. First, he talks about being washed. Now, the phrase, the idea of being washed is found multiple times in Scripture under different wording. In Titus 3, verse 5, Paul also Paul there describes it as the washing of regeneration. John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus describes it as being born again. This is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives really prior to salvation. Because what happens is, naturally, we don't see our sin as sin. Naturally, we don't see our sin as serious enough to send us to hell. Naturally, we're okay without Jesus. We don't figure we need Him all that much. We're okay if other people do, though. What happens is the Holy Spirit, He comes upon us. And He begins to convict us of of our sin, our unrighteousness, and of the judgment to come. Really what He does is He makes us see ourselves in verses 9 and 10. It's the Holy Spirit that makes me see my sin as unrighteousness. It's the Holy Spirit that makes me see that, that my sin is separating me from God. And because of that sin and living in this willful rebellion against God, I am separated from Him and I have no part in the kingdom of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then once he has revealed this to us and made us aware of our sin and our condemnation and the fact that we are going to face judgment before God, he also reveals to us Jesus Christ. He makes us see that what Jesus did on the cross was for us, that because of Jesus, we can be saved. And at that moment, once we have been revealed to us our sin and Jesus's righteousness, we have a choice to make. At that moment, we will either turn from our sin and turn to the Jesus the Holy Spirit is revealing to us, or we will stay in our sin and we will reject the Jesus the Holy Spirit is revealing to us. But make no mistake, we always make a choice. Right now, in this moment, today, every person in here will make a choice about what to do with Jesus. Every person in here will either choose to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, or they will choose to reject Jesus and continue to live in their sin. We always make a choice. When we choose to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit then comes upon us. And He he washes us. He regenerates us. And at that moment, we are born again. And the idea of being born again and regenerated is that we are a new creation. Our sin has been washed away. God accounts us as righteous in Christ. We are a brand new person, a brand new creation. This is what Jesus does. He also sanctifies us. Sanctification is the process that that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to help us become more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit, from the moment we are regenerated, we are washed, He begins to work in our lives and begins to help us to see issues in our lives that need to be dealt with. This isn't right. Do this instead. This is, you need to stop doing this and start doing that. You need to start doing this and stop doing that. He just constantly is working in our lives with the goal of helping us to be like Jesus also says we are justified. Justification is the process of where God declares a believing sinner to be righteous. And this is the best thing of all, I think, for us to get. 
The moment we receive Jesus, we turn to Him and we embrace Him as Lord and Savior, God declares that we are no longer guilty. This is like Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. See, salvation isn't a matter of being good enough. It's not a matter of turning over a new leaf and earning the goodness and the grace of God, earning His forgiveness, for we could never do that. But when we follow the Spirit's leading to the cross and we embrace the cross and the Savior that it represents, at that moment, God says, not guilty. Your sins have been paid and we are free. We are forever free. This is what Jesus does. The Holy Spirit does all of these things. See, the Holy Spirit, He wants us to understand that that what we were can be that what we are can be what we were. Right? Verses 9 and 10, they have been true for all of us at various points in our life. We have been unrighteous and we have been in sin. But the Holy Spirit, through what He does, He can take us from what we are and He can make us something entirely different. And this is, this is a choice that each one of us must make on our own. We must choose to follow the Spirit's leading turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. Jesus absolutely turns sinners into saints. But only after we embrace Him, Savior and Lord. Now, I know what we've talked about today is it's stiff, right? I mean, this is a straightforward, this is sin, you do this, you don't go to heaven, you go to hell. It's pretty rough. But I do believe we need to receive it just like it was given. I think it's meant to be stiff. Some things just have to be that way. Here's why I believe this. Yesterday I was reading my Bible, and my gospel passage was in Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus said, A tree is known by its fruit. You know, we know this in the natural world, right? I mean, when you see a tree with apples, you can safely conclude that's an apple tree. But I want you to use your imagination with me for a second to to picture a scene. You come to my house and we go in my backyard. And you see the apple tree that's back there. And there are a few apples on it. And you ask, are the apples on your apple tree good? Imagine I reply, it's a peach tree. You'd, You'd probably say, well, I see apples on it. It's an apple tree. Now imagine if I replied and said, it's just going through a rebellious phase. I mean, it's just, that, that's where the apples are coming from. But deep down, it's still a peach tree. It knows what's right. It knows it's a peach tree. But when the rebellious phase is over, then it'll turn back to, to making peaches again instead of apples. Or imagine if I said, well, you know, the, the, peach, the, 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 the trees that this tree descended from, they were a rough lot. And they never really, they never really got with the whole bearing peaches thing. And it left it with some issues that it has to work through. And so that's where the apples are coming from. I mean, it's just trying to overcome its past to, to, to rise to where it should be. Or imagine if I said, I mean, no, no peach tree's perfect, right? I mean, you can't always expect a, a peach tree to bear peaches, right? I mean. Every peach tree is going to mess up and occasionally bear apples. Come on, we we know that. Or imagine if I said, how judgmental are you? What are you, God? Who are you to get to decide what kind of fruit my peach tree ought to bear? 
Now, if I were to reply in those ways, you would think I had lost my mind. But the reality is, that's how we respond to passages like this. When we begin to, to deal with sin and unrighteousness, and it's in our lives, or it's in the lives of a loved one, we instantly begin to make excuses. Why, what said was true, but not for me, not for my child, not for my family member. Listen. If your life is characterized by sin and unrighteousness, you are not a peach tree. You are not a saint that has been saved by Jesus. You are a sinner that needs to be saved by Jesus. And that salvation, it comes through repentance and faith. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. It's a change of mind about God because we then say, you know what? God's standards are right. When God says something is sin or unrighteousness, it is. When God says there are consequences for sin, that is true. When God says there is a Savior for sin that I must embrace, that is right. It's a change of mind about sin. Up to this point, many people may well have believed that their sin were just mistakes. You have to change that mindset. You have to embrace the truth that your sin is sin. Up to this point, you may have believed that your sin was not that big of a deal. Surely your sin was not enough to keep you out of heaven. But you must change your mind and embrace the truth. Your sin is unrighteousness. As long as you live in that, you have no part in the kingdom of God. Up to this point, you may well have believed that as long as you're a good person, you really don't need Jesus You have to change your mind about that and understand the only people who have any part in the kingdom of God will spend eternity in heaven with God are those who embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And it results in a change of life because when we repent, we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus. And the thing is, we have to to do that. There is no turning to Jesus without turning from sin. Jesus and sin are like north and south. You cannot go both directions at the same time. You cannot go to Jesus while living in sin. You cannot go in sin while leaning into Jesus. You have to turn from one to do the other. And this this is your choice. Your decision to say, I am tired of going to sin. I am tired of being condemned. I am tired and I do not want to go to hell. So I am going to turn and go to Jesus. And as we do this, we have to let go of the sin with the determination we are going to forsake it to the best of our abilities. We have to grab on to the cross. You have to let go of one to grab the other. You cannot cling to your sin and to the cross of Christ at the same time. You can grab on to one or the other. And as you do this, you do it because you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You believe that He rose again on the third day and you believe that because of that, He will save you. And what you are can be what you were. That you can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified through Jesus Christ and the working of His Holy Spirit. And that, my friend, is a step you and you alone have to take. There is no one who can embrace Jesus on your behalf. There is no one who can repent of your sins on your behalf. You must repent. 
You must believe. You must call out to Jesus. You must embrace him. And the Bible promises all who do that, they will be saved. At the same time, those who reject that, those who resist that, understand they will not be saved. They have no part in the kingdom of God. At this point, we're going to stand as the musicians